welcome to Kill Your Silos, the only show about operations that dares to ask the question, there must be a better way to manage all of this shit. I'm your host, Jason Reichel, the RevOps evangelist. Today, I'm joined by Emerald Maravella. It's a weird title. It's New Business Leader for Plaid. I've never seen that title before, but I love it. Emerald has trained and managed over 200 reps, uh, BDRs, been in the sales space. She's worked her way from nonprofits to the hollowed halls of Twilio. So she's seen it all. And what we're going to learn today is how to wear multiple hats to different stages within an organization. Um, and we're going to dive into why RevOps has mattered to her career and to her going forward. Uh, welcome, Emerald. How are you? Thanks, Jason, for the intro. I'm doing really well today. How are you doing? Good. I'm great. It's so nice to see you. I don't think uh, it's, it's weird to start to see people that you've seen before now that COVID is, I'm not going to call it ending because who fucking knows what's going on. But uh, now that life is returning to normal. So I hope to see you in a more physical space in the future. That would be uh, great. Good. I'm, gl I'm glad you're not like, that would be terrible. That would be a bad <laughs> place to start this interview from. Uh, as a primer, um, because I think that revenue operations means a lot of things to different kinds of people. And, you know, I view you and in, in the way that you put your career as being one of those RevOps pioneers, even if you consider yourself more in a sales space or marketing space, we've had different guests who don't use the title RevOps, but act like revenue operations pioneers in my, from my perspective. So what does RevOps mean to you? Yeah, revenue operations to me means the strategy, the operations, the tactical excellence necessary to drive world-class revenue acquisition programs. And so, as you mentioned, it's both the sales motions, it's the marketing campaigns, and it's how we tie all of those together and look at them holistically to drive success. Wow. Okay. So some <laughs> words here. Let's, let's unpack some of those words. So sure. when you talk about strategy, yeah. what, what is strategy at a SaaS company? Because yeah. that's always that's always a hard thing to kind of nail down. So what is strategy? What do you mean when you mean a strategy? Yeah. So I think strategy is one of those words that people use all the time, but nobody really knows the clear definition of it. So anytime I've been asked to define strategy, I say it's the means about which you go achieving a goal. Okay. That's great. So it's like the vision or a primer to the goal. And then you would then say the operations, the, the, the tactical elements to achieve that goal. Is that yeah. how you would... Cool. Yeah. And then one key part that we always bring up in revenue new operations when I'm on this podcast with people, Go Nimbly has a perspective that is strategy, tools and technology, enablement and insights. Does that fall sort of in line with what, what you think as well? Yeah, totally. Totally. I, you know, full disclosure, I'm a Go Nimbly disciple. I really appreciate and respect and admire the minds there. So if you tell me Go Nimbly defines it that way, I will say it hundred percent aligns with how I'm thinking. <laughs> Great. That's awesome. I'm glad that we've brainwashed you that way. Uh, okay, one thing that I was—I was looking at the pre-interview, and one thing that came up for me was, you know, there was this line that the that uh, I think Lorena pre-interviewed you, and and uh, yeah. there was a line in there about the idea that of challenging the status quo, which is something that I relate to a lot. I grew up punk rock in in the punk rock community, and so I kind of have had my brain wired to be skeptical and challenge what people are saying works for no reason, but that's why we've always done it. Yeah. For you, how does that challenging the status quo drive the way that you position yourself and the way that you've been successful in organizations? Yeah, I've been really fortunate to work at some incredible high growth startups. So I was at Box when I first stepped into the tech space. I uh, was at Twilio for a number of years, as you mentioned, and now here at Plaid have seen us grow from 
150 to employees to probably over 800 today. I can't keep count. And that's in the short span of two and a half years. And yeah. that sort of change doesn't happen unless you have individuals across all levels of the company willing to come in and challenge the status quo. Um, believe that there's a better way and a different way to do things to drive better outcomes. And so it's certainly something that I've folded into my hiring philosophy. It's a key characteristic that I seek out. And it's certainly one of the top three characteristics that the top five to 10% of people I've ever worked with embody and uphold. Um, so I really try to weave it into the DNA of the businesses that I'm a part of. Why do you think it is that, you know, one thing that has always struck me and one of the reasons that, you know, I went and co-founded Go Nimbly was around the idea that we are disruptors in the technology space. All the companies you just mentioned have been disruptors in their technology space. Yet we operate and manage our businesses in a very formulaic, not really techie way of thinking about new ways to improve. But, you know, we had this whole phenomenon of growth hacking and things like that, but I'm not looking for hacks. I'm looking for things that are sustainable and actually work differently and behave differently under pressure. What's your perception of why in, you know, tech culture have businesses sort of not really challenged how they go to market and how they actually function? It's easy and it's comfortable. Uh, it's easy and comfortable to follow <laughs> the patterns of success. Like that's what humans love to do. And I think in some ways that that's okay, right? Sometimes you need to prop up something that you know works just to get the ball rolling. But one of the philosophies that I have to help me cement and solidify the spirit of challenging the status quo is I try to encourage each of my team members to keep at least a 20% experimentation uh, like sort of time allocation, energy allocation, right? So it's not an either or equation for me. I think the formulaic can be good, right? And as a sales development leader, I certainly think operational rigor and predictability really, really important to success. Yes. But we can't get caught up in that. We've got to always be asking ourselves, how do we disrupt ourselves and not allow others to disrupt us? And it's about a balance more so than it is an either or. It, what's so funny about that statement when you're saying it that like kind of caught me in the middle of it is yes, obviously you want rigor, obviously you want to operationalize things that are working. But the problem with all of our jobs when it comes to revenue is that as soon as the buyer can predict what's going to happen, they start to ignore those tactics, they start <laughs> to ignore those strategies. And so you actually have to be on top of that in order to stay ahead and 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 give buyers what they want, which is a really personalized experience, a really unique experience, something that feels special to them. Yeah. Is, does that, you agree with that? It was just kind of what you were talking about, why that's so important to build into your operational processes. Yeah. I love this thought because it is core to what I really love about sales and about people management is that humans and people will always disrupt the patterns and the systems and the processes that you put in place. And so it's important for every individual to recognize how to deliver a unique and personalized experience with an underlying foundation uh, that happens here. And one thing I've been really trying to do, particularly in this last year or so, one of my teammates introduced me or reminded me, he said, you know, we're living in a, a world and a society that's increasingly more or it's you're either personalized or you're formulaic 
Um, and he says, we have to remember that we can be and. And so something that I'm trying to instill in the team is foundationally, you should understand the process. You should have your toolkit. You should leverage the technology to cover the majority of the interactions that you have. But there's some things you can't prepare for. Each individual will bring their own set of experiences and perspectives. And by individual in this case, I mean your prospects and your customers will bring their own histories into the conversation. And it's your job to both balance the toolkit and resources that you have with the real-time dynamics that are happening in this conversation. And your job is to decide what of your toolkit is most relevant and important in that situation. Um, so we never promise that we can prepare someone for 100% of the conversations that they have. This is where we really index on hiring intellectually curious and emotionally intelligent people because their prospects and customers will always throw them surprises and we need to trust that they'll be ready for whatever comes their way. Or to be able to say, I'm not ready for this. I need to take a step back and prepare a little bit more for this. And that's okay too. Has the type of people who are interested in business development roles changed in your career? Like the type of people attracted to that role now? Is it becoming more of an operational revenues type role where it is rewarded to, you know, be, I mean, obviously you say you look for this, but do you think this is true across the entire industry where we're looking for empathetic, thoughtful, or people to come into the organization? Is, is that a change? I think we're seeing more and more emphasis on empathy across the industry. I mean, when I started off in sales dev 10 years ago, folks, didn't even think sales dev needed to be its own function, its own standalone function, right? Uh, and so certainly I think part of that growing trend of it becoming more core to business and accepting that has also changed the profiles that we seek. I think traditionally uh, sales professionals were your athletes. Uh, now it's, uh, I think folks are indexing more on still that competitive drive that athletes bring to the table, that excellence, uh, and also looking at technical acumen, which is one of the things that we look for here at Plaid as well, looking for empathy, intellectual curiosity. Um, and so I think as the changes in the industry at large have occurred, certainly the makeup of the, the folks coming into sales dev interested in growing careers in that avenue have certainly changed as well. Yeah, I think that one of the byproducts, like, it helps to be an empathetic person going into business development, but one of the byproducts of being in business development is that you have to try to sell someone a narrative and when you try to sell someone a narrative, you must practice empathy because you need to understand what their objections are and how to overcome them, not in a salesy way, because that doesn't actually work, but in a way that answers um, their concerns, maybe even before they have them, right? You have to be a little bit of a fortune teller and know and make and read, you know, the tea leaves, the micro interactions that you have with people on how do I move them to the next step? Because nobody in those, in that early of that cycle is saying what they really mean. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, if you hear no, it doesn't always not mean no, but it's not the same no, right? And it's not the same yes. It's not the same two weeks from now. It's not the same. So you're making a lot of judgment calls that you have to really put yourself in their position to maximize on. And I think that's such a good experience for anyone to go through in any part of a, of a tech company, because it's often that we we think that these kind of words like no, yes, in two weeks all have the same exact meaning um, and they don't like they vary from organization to organization or person to person. And you really have to understand how to validate them and, and to put yourself in, in 
the shoes of that person. It, yeah. it is a really exciting job. Yeah, I love that. That process that you're mentioning requires the ability to process a thousand signals at a time. And you're right that, that the signals that a uh, prospect is giving you change based on circumstances that you don't see or hear, but that you must try to dive into. Uh, one thing that I say to my team, and I'm sure they hate when I say this to them, is if you got no from a customer, they're not actually saying no to you. What they're saying to you is you didn't do a good enough job to convince yes. me of the value, why I should exchange my time and energy for this thing that you're selling to me. Uh, and I always get a grimace and nobody loves when I say that, but I fundamentally think that that's true. So one of the things we try to do to combat that here is we actually have a value that's like emblazoned in steel on the wall in our sales pod. And I got the chance to see this again yesterday and my little heart flipped, but the value is leave no stone unturned. And to your point about understanding someone's objections before you get in there, um, we do a values review for every new new business team member on their first day. And we break down those values and connect them to ways that they can live out those values on a daily basis. And the recommendation for the no stone unturned value is make sure you understand your customer's primary, secondary, but also tertiary objections and know how you are going to answer that. Um, because again, as you mentioned, those things evolve and change all the time. And so when you try to put yourself in the customer's shoes and think about all the possible possible objections that they could throw your way, you need to be ready to address any single one of them at any time. Yeah. Do you think that the title, like your title now, since it's, it's like an evolution of where you've been, hints at the importance of this function as its own operational unit within SaaS and tech? Do you think that's where this title is now emerged from, where maybe you would be called, you know, I don't know, head of, I don't know what the titles used to be. Like, you know, like there weren't that flattering to people, right? And they weren't really calling out the importance of this role within an organization. Have you seen in the last 10 years an importance in this function in developing people, in being a frontline, essentially CS for the frontline of the pipeline? Yeah. Have you seen that mature and be more respected within organizations that you've worked in? I think it's a really interesting question because you're asking it about my specific title and I hesitate to assign too much importance to that. But if I remove myself from the equation here, I think, yes, the answer is resoundingly yes. The importance of the function is has risen. Um, the recognition that it has its own set of strategies, tools, et cetera, is really key. We're also seeing a growing level of recognition that star professionals start in this role. I think sometimes it's, uh, people forget that Mark Benioff was a BDR yep. when he first started his career. There are a bunch of really great sales folks. Almost every enterprise AE that I respect and admire today started off as a BDR early on in their career. And so you're seeing more and more folks have come through these programs and risen the ranks and have truly, again, shown to be like knockout stars in their um, in their careers. And I think that helps. I also think it's been really clear how important pipeline is. I think there's more rigor expected of sales. It's no longer a cross your heart and leave it up to the individual AEs, but it does take a lot of organization. It does take a lot of um wrangling folks and rallying them around a true North star and a lot of discipline and where it makes sense to siphon this out as its own, um, as its own standalone function. Yeah, and that this is a that. craft that people yes, can right. excel in, right? Uh, have you ever played uh, kiss, Mary kill before? Uh, yes. You know I that have. game. 
Yeah. Oh, all right. All right. So this is <laughs> Kiss, Mary Kill Business Edition. So there's not going to be any any crazy things on here. Okay. Um, I'm going to tell you the topic, and okay. then you're going to tell me what of the topic you're going to kiss, marry, or kill. Uh, and these okay. all have relations to revenue operations and the broader context of tech. Okay. Okay. I'm right. excited. Okay. The first one is work. So the, the category is work. I don't okay. know if they're going to do graphics, but work. All right. Okay. Uh, phone calls, Slack messages, or Zoom. Phone calls, Slack messages, Zoom. I'm going to yes. kill Slack messages. Everybody's, everybody used to love Slack and now <laughs> nobody wants to be on it. I think for me, Slack messages really disrupt my productivity. It's so easy. It's so fun. And so my brain was, autom- oh, sorry, that's my dog there. I was automatically jumping into um, Slack messages. Every time I got a notification, I was so excited. It made me feel so hyper-connected. But now it's yeah. killer for my productivity. Yeah. So let's kill those off. Okay, phone calls. Uh, so um, I'll kiss a phone call. Uh, it's sweet. It's nostalgic. I think the features in Zoom. So I think the long term, the Mary's got to be the Zoom. Okay, good. You know, one thing I would switch Slack and phone just because any if anyone calls me on my phone, I'm immediately offended. My reaction to that <laughs> is like, how dare you call me? Who are you? I don't want you to call me. I didn't expect your call. Now, an expected phone call is a good thing. Uh, a non-expected phone call is bad. All right. Uh, work from home. Okay. All right. Uh, when you're working, do you prefer... <laughs> So Kiss, Mary Kill, silence, music, or podcasts as a background noise. Oh, I've got to kill the podcast on that one. Uh, my brain just can't handle concentrating uh, on multiple things. And podcasts, I like to really involve myself there. Um, so the Mary, the Kill, or sorry, the Mary, the Kiss is music. It says, <sighs> music is my guilty pleasure, so I'll kiss it. Uh, I probably <laughs> shouldn't. I had a friend in college who told me that the brain cannot process music and your work at the same time, but I do it anyways. Um, uh-huh. Silence is golden. Silence will always make sure that I get to the project that I need to. Uh, so I'll have to marry it. I find that silence works for me for like 25 minutes of intense work. But if I have to like do something for an extended time, I need something that I that I can distract myself with because my enemy is a new tab in a browser window. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's my enemy. And even if I'm doing like, I'm, if I'm doing a PowerPoint and we're doing some RFP responses to some big organizations. So I'm looking for data points and things like that. It means I can open up a new tab, but I'm going to keep reading data points for much longer than I need to then put information into an RFP response. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it, that's my enemy, but yeah, silence is good for about 20 minutes. And then I'm more about music. I don't believe the thing that your friend said about music. <laughs> I, I'm a musician and I, I feel like when I listen to it, maybe I, it's a different rhythm I develop. So maybe it's not a consistent rhythm. Maybe I am listening to the music, yeah. but I find, I also find a little bit the distance from the thing I'm working on is helpful sometimes like coming in and out, coming in and out, but staying oh, focused on the task at hand. I don't know if that's a, a real thing. I'm going to look it up after this in a new tab. I think uh, the, last cat. Oh, good. I think the genre of music really matters too. So I love listening to rap and hip hop and the, those are so lyrical that I cannot enjoy both like the lyricality of it and the task at hand. Oh yeah. I can, I definitely agree with you on podcasts because either I get sucked into it or I'm so mad that I'm rewinding every like 20 seconds to try to catch what I just heard. So it's, it's a productivity killer. When someone says I listen to podcasts while I work, I'm like, okay, you don't like to work. 
At the that's end. My own, that's, that's my own thing. Yes, that, 100% agree. That's what I believe. Okay, this is business development. So this is going to be a hard one for you. Okay, okay. cold emails, yeah. site chat, tools like Drift and things like that, or yeah. LinkedIn messages. Um, I'm going to marry the LinkedIn message there. I've seen that really be an effective channel. Um, the other two were cold emails and site chat. And site chat. Oof. Uh, I'm going to do an unpopular thing here and say, this is really hard. This is really hard because you articulated it as a cold email. Yeah. I gave you a free out there. I'm just assigning a bunch of value to that word cold. I'm going to kill the cold email though. I will say every team that I have led love an email Love the research that goes into that and certainly utilized it myself when I was uh, a BDR. Um, chat, I'm making some assumptions about someone's level of interest and readiness to buy and the ability to connect to them immediately. So I'll kiss that. Uh, there are certainly a slew of concerns and hesitations I have about chat. Like with any channel, I think you've got to be smart about how you do it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think if you're smart about it, chat can be really good. So I'll keep it around. One of the things that you said in your pre-interview that was really interesting and no one's ever really talked about. I talk about it a lot when I'm talking about why do most CEOs go that the most fun that they ever had when they were building a company was in the early stages, which Mm -hmm. I'll get into that in a second. But you said Mm -hmm. something around your philosophy around collaboration. And you said that the the key to collaboration is wearing one another's hats. Can you expand on that idea? Because I really love that. Yeah, I think... Uh, it's funny. I don't remember saying that when you started to say you said this once. I'm like, where was my head in that situation? Uh, but I can say that I still really feel that strongly a few weeks later here. Um, I think it's really, I want to think about how I'm going to articulate this here. Is it, is it go back to empathy? Because if you've walked in their hat, their shoes, whatever that metaphor is, you have a better understanding and respect for those those roles and those functions and what they need to accomplish? I think empathy is the start of it, but I really do think it is about sharing responsibilities and sharing goals with somebody else. I think it's one thing to say, yes, I understand that you want that. But most of the time when you're saying, yes, I understand that you want that, the subtext is, but I still really want this. And I think the goal of true collaboration is, yes, okay, I hear that you want that and that's important to you. And these are the reasons why. These are the reasons why this is important to me. What is the shared overlap here that helps us get to our company's key goal? And that's not something I thought about when I was early on in my professional career. As a sales, as an early career sales professional, and as someone who's hyper competitive, I always wanted to win. Um, and that is detrimental to making a company great. And do you now, think that Matt, and, I, and I don't mean to put this on the spot, yeah, but do you think that's yeah. because you didn't have enough leaders above you refocusing that competitiveness into a more collaborative sort of competitiveness to win as an organization, to win as a, as a team? That's a really great question. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say no to that. And I'm going to say that it's probably, it was me. It was the lack of my experience to understand that a leader's responsibility and I wanted to be a leader. And I recognize now that I was a leader in some ways, but not a leader in others. And I think where I really lacked as a leader early on in my career was investing in true partnership and really achieving goals that were good for the business rather than for myself. Um, and I think now my role today as new business leader, uh, it is it is less about 
defending what is singularly good for my team and is more about how can my team be of service to these ultimate company goals? Um, Certainly not a thing I would have said five or 10 years ago. Um, For me, I always tell people that CEOs often when I, when I interview them for things and, and try to get research market research out of them, they always say how excited they were in the very early part of the company. And and a lot of people attribute that, well, your product's getting going you get market fit, that's exciting. But yeah. really what it boils down to them is the close connection they had to people on the team and yeah. how they could feel like everybody on the team cared about getting the company to the next place because yeah. they were wearing so many hats, because things weren't siloed off and said, this is your play, this is where you need to perform and only where you need to perform here. And, and that always led me to be thinking about things like, Oh, for business development, as an example, should should CS people move from CS into business development and kind of complete a, a circle there so that they have all the experience? Because as you know, like something like CS, you get really beat up sometimes and pretty negative about your product because you're dealing with all sorts of problems with the product or with the with the market fit you have or or just people being people, you know, and, and yeah. not understanding how to best utilize something. Um, and I always go like, would they have a lot of empathy to come in and then solve the problems in the front end of the process by rotating those things? So I always think about that cross collaboration being not just saying you value other parts of the function, but actually yeah. walking in the shoes of other parts of the function. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that is really important. Uh, and something that you said here about CEOs having a lot of fun in earlier stages and being connected uh, resonates a lot with me because I love early stage organizations, but I'm having a hell of a time later stage companies too. And I think one of the things that people forget is still true is you can peek your head outside of these, what feels like a narrow focus, like your specialty, your function, et cetera. And also mm-hmm. it's mandated. And I think this is where the like spirit of challenging the status quo is really important. It's just because a company may not have a formal opportunity for CS to jump into a business development doesn't mean that a person who's in CS can't say, hey, can I shadow your call over here or vice versa? Or, mm-hmm. you know, let's go to coffee. Tell me about everything that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. It's a small investment, right? These like experiences to really understand where a partner of yours is coming from don't need you to formally move to that team and and jump into that role. It is, and this is what really excited me about going back into the office yesterday. It's about the smaller spontaneous moments that drive connection that I think can really enforce culture. And we've, you know, we've touched upon how important that is too. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made in your career that you've really learned from And then how should someone in their career look at, you know, quote, unquote, and I kind of, I'm setting you up for saying that mistakes are learning experiences, but how should people actually look at mistakes in their career? Ooh, you got me sweating here thinking about all of my uh, mistakes (laughs) in my career. And there are a ton of them. Um, I'll name a few fundamental ones. One, when I worked at Box, I bet if you asked anyone who worked with me there, they would tell you they would not work with me again. I was not a serious professional. I focused more on being the the woman people liked than the woman someone trusted. Um, so that was a huge missed opportunity on my part. Um, had a mentor at the time tell me to get my act together. And so when I went to Twilio, I was highly focused on getting my act together and being of value to the organization there. Um, one of the key mistakes I made there in my first week, I mailed an email out to 100 plus people uh, with HTML exposed in it because I was trying to track open uh, rates in Salesforce. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the folks I had sent that to ended up being a buddy of our CEO, Jeff Lawson. Jeff mailed that to his executive team, asked what happened there. Uh, my boss, the head of sales at the time, asked me what happened there. And I thought I was going to get fired on the spot. Uh, and he then, after I explained it to him, he said, okay, great. Do we know what happened? Sorry about that. Do we know what happened? Yes. Do we know how we're going to fix it in the future? Yes. Okay, great. Let's not make that mistake again. And so that taught me that mistakes are okay and they're recoverable. And if you make a mistake, you better, bet your ass you better know what went wrong and how you're going to fix it moving forward. Um, so that was key for me. Um, there's another mistake I made in my career where I jumped to a company. It's not on my CV because uh, I don't uh, I don't like broadcasting this mistake. Worked there for six weeks didn't dig into the culture, didn't lay out the role, the rules, the responsibility, what the process would look like, what the expectations were, um, and had a horrible time left in six weeks. Uh, and so yeah. I've made the commitment to myself that I would never make that mistake again. But, you know, you can hear all of this wisdom on podcasts, read it in books, but sometimes you just got to go out there and make the foolish mistake yourself and feel that pain and shame. And when you're asked about it on a podcast, you know, sweat it out and remind yourself that you're not going to do that ever again and try to share the wisdom with others. My last question before yeah. I ask you the, the, the big dreaded end message that you want people to go with. Yeah. I'm really putting you to fire. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's um, good. What advice would you have for a BDR yeah. at a early stage company, a scaling company and an enterprise company? What would be like the day one advice that you would give to each of those type of people entering into that work? Yeah, I love that you have divided sort of the maturity of the company here because I do think that changes over time. Early stage, mid-stage enterprise level. Yep. Early stage uh, would be experiment constantly, quickly, um, fail quickly. Um, decide what your core pillars are immediately. Uh, so you've got to know what your three KPIs are. You've got to know what are the three most important things you want to do every day, et cetera. At a mid-stage company, it would be really pay attention to the craft, learn your fundamentals. I, I think at this stage, you'll probably have some structure there. Knock those fundamentals out of the park. If To an earlier conversation we were having here, if you want to stretch beyond your role there, I agree that that's really important, but you've got to get your first job done. Uh, and so I think that's where opportunities really happen is when you've mastered your quota, you've mastered the fundamentals and you can show that you're ready for the next stage there, uh, for an enterprise level company, similar to a mid-market company. Um, but I would also say This goes for all of them, actually, but I'm imagining in an enterprise company, your career track is much more defined. Uh, but advice I'd give to everyone is do the job you want before you do it. Uh, but you have that ability to sort of step into that new role with more clarity at an enterprise level company than you would earlier on. Still relevant advice for the first two segments that we talked about. That was yes, a really interesting absolutely. question. I gave you not fully formed thoughts there, but that's okay. It's a, off the top of it's my kind of head. a hard question on the spot. You know, what I think is not really important is to look at if you're in a job, look at your, uh, you know, where you are in the inflection point of the company and measure yourself accordingly. You know, everyone's had the experience and this is one of my 
least favorite scenarios to find myself in is I've hired people or been in companies where they're enticed by say the next rang of companies. So they'll start hiring a bunch of ex executives from Salesforce. Yeah. They'll come into a scaling or early stage company and ha- expect that that company is going to work and behave the same way as the enterprise company and yeah. fail or become yeah. so disingr- disgruntled that it actually stops that company from growing yeah. to where they should be at that point in time. Yeah. Right. I think there's two things I'm going to say here. One is know the company inflection point that you're going into. Look for advice from people at companies in that inflection point. Two, you have to want to do the job of that company where it is now to be successful. It's kind of like what you said, which is I really believe you have a job to be done. And then once you do that job, don't let other people define things for you. Say what you want, you know, take the space back for yourself because you've traded from what I've always expected interacted with my employees is if you're doing the job to be done, you've paid your debt to your paycheck, right? You, you, you've honored that agreement. So if you come to me now and say, Jason, I'm really interested in doing X, Y, Z. The only thing I can say is, okay, that's the only thing I can say, because otherwise I'm bad at setting expectations of what the job to be done is. Right. And I'm bad. And the company is bad at it. Um, And I think that companies have to also realize that that's how new jobs to be done can be created within different roles and things like that. But ultimately that's sort of my mentality towards it. And, you know, I think your advice is really sound too. Last question. Uh, it's kind of similar to the last one, which is okay. we do this big billboard thing um, where we're going to put it up in lights. Any, imagine you're driving to to work in San Francisco and there's a big billboard. What would you want that billboard to say so that people get the most impact out of that message? What is your most impactful message? Yeah. Um, so I thought about this for a little bit here. I think one of the most important, like quote unquote, slogans that I've used to guide my life uh, came from a friend in college. He was an internet Deloitte at the time. And one of his mentors told him uh, this phrase, be, do, have. I think a lot of times folks get caught up in the thing that they want, the title, the salary, the car, the house, et cetera, the thing that they can have. Um, But they lose sight of being who they want to be and doing the type of work every day that makes them feel fulfilled. Um, I think it's really interesting. We both kind of touched on this in today's conversation, right? Like we want to be problem solvers. We want to be connectors. We want to be empathetic and being that on a daily basis for us, despite the title, despite the role, despite the companies is fulfilling and it's energizing. And when you understand who you want to be, then you can start to focus on the things you want to do daily to make that come to life. And then you can have the things that you want. Yeah. I think that's really solid advice because so many people can have things, but never really be doing or being who they want. Yeah. And I think that as, you know, like with all quotes and all kind of advice like this, it can be trite when taken out of context. Right. But when, when you look at it as a prioritization metric, or, or method, right? It is very solid. You know, the thing that I, we use at GoNimbly and that I've kind of used for a while is shipmate, you know, uh, sorry, ship, shipmate self. It's a, like an old Navy thing. And it, that doesn't mean being a corporate shill. It means is the thing I want to do, the thing I want to have good for the highest level of the company, good for people around me, and ultimately good for me. If those three things aren't aligned, then don't do that thing. Mm-hmm. Find mm-hmm. the things that where those three things are aligned because then you're helping the company succeed 
you're helping your people around you succeed and you're achieving what you want. Yeah. And then I always say, once those things no longer align, once everything, what you know, that you want to be doesn't align to those things, you know, it's time to move on to another company, right? You know, it's time to move on to another mission or something. And so that's always been a piece of device that I think is, is really, really useful. You know, I started my career coaching young consultants, right. And a lot of people get into the career field and need a little bit of a prioritization mantra. I think that's a really solid one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I I really appreciated our time together and I appreciate having you on kill your silos and I look forward to all of the business development you will be leading in the future. I really appreciate it, Jason. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. Bye. Bye.